as I mentioned at the opening of service, we've been on a journey, on a teaching series titled Royalty Revealed, where we've been exploring, um, interrogating, hoping to understand the kingship of Jesus. And what does it mean for Jesus to be king? And our hope has been not just to uh, accrue more analytic or intellectual knowledge of God or Jesus. That's not the main point, though maybe we'll get that. But the hope is that as we understand who Jesus is, his kingship will actually be, be in a better place to um, understand and receive the incredible love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. That's the hope, right? That God is love. Jesus is love for us. And it's very, but it's also very easy, very possible to misunderstand who God is, who Jesus is, and therefore have the love of God just pass you by. And that would be life's greatest tragedy. So we're taking time this season of Epiphany to hopefully understand, get to know Jesus in a new and deeper way. And so every Sunday has had kind of a subtitle, a different facet of the kingship of Jesus. And today, uh, the title can be something like this. Jesus is the king who commands. Jesus is the king who commands. In other words, he has authority. Now, we've been peeling this onion of authority for the past few Sundays because we've said several times, and you may agree, that notions of authority, of obedience, especially when we talk about God or Jesus, uh, we're allergic, as a culture, we're allergic to those concepts. We don't generally like the idea that I should have a God or a Jesus who commands me, let alone one that I should obey. It's uncomfortable. So that's been challenging enough for us. And then today... To try to understand this concept of authority, we have a gospel reading that is also wildly uncomfortable. It has Jesus teaching, yes, but then suddenly there's a, a demon-possessed individual that shows up. Right? That's alarming because I don't think in our daily life we talk about demons or demon possession. And then Jesus doesn't sidestep the moment. He actually engages that reality. And then from that, we're meant to hopefully learn something. What? That's the question. Now, it's tempting to spend some time here talking about uh, the metaphysics or ontology of what it means to be human, the human realm, the divine realm, the reality of demons, all of that. I'm going to go ahead and sidestep that. If that's something you want to talk about, we can spend time, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. We also host a weekly alpha, and that's a place where we talk about the Christian faith and all its details, so we can talk there. Uh, but today, I'm not going to spend so much time talking about demons or the reality of that. I assume they're real. I'm going to go ahead and trust Jesus that they're there. But I, when we look at that gospel reading, we can get lost in the weeds of dissecting demonology. But I really do think that the gospel writer, and what we're meant to see is something, uh, I would say, a lot deeper, actually. We're seeing that Jesus has been given divine authority. In fact, he had divine authority to speak into areas of life where we can't. Each one of us here has a life story. We're journeying with struggle, pain, with loss, suffering. 
And not only do we have our own stories, but we might have friends or family or people in our lives that have their own stories. And we do our best to support each other, to try to be there, I hope. But I also think you might come to, you've experienced this where you're trying to support someone, you're trying to love someone, you're trying to love and support yourself, and you reach a limit where you just can't. Your internal emotional resources, your time has a limit. Your intellectual capacity to understand someone else's journey has a limit. Your experience, I just don't, I hear what you're saying, but I haven't lived through that, and I can say X, Y, and Z, but I'm not sure what else to do. Can I bake you a pie? You just feel the limits of what you can do. Is that fair? Interacting? Okay, yeah. I want you to know something. I want what Mark is showing us here that unlike us, Jesus does not have those limits. Because I promise you, and actually this happened recently this past week, if someone comes to you saying, I think there's a demon, there's a situation, do you believe in demons being in buildings? There's a situation in Camor. Would you do something about, <laughs> about that? That happened to me this week. And I, I'm like, I'm not that kind of priest. <laughs> I, I read books. I mean, I'll pray for you, but I, I, the Catholics have training. You should talk to the guy at the, the shrine. I'll be honest with you, man. Like, I, have, I have limits. I'll pray with the, the, the person. <sighs> Thankfully, Jesus doesn't have that limit. You come to Jesus with whatever's going on in your life, what we're meant to see there, is that Jesus has exactly what you need. That's it. Now, having said that, that's the hope. You can take it to the bank. That's real hope. But this is what I want to talk about. Because once you see that hope that Mark is showing us, that the gospel is showing us, that Jesus can do anything, here we hit a wall. Because we're modern Western individuals, and you said you just talked about a story in this ancient text about a demon-possessed man and some dude doing magic, who you claim is God, and somehow that was resolved. I have questions, I have doubt, I'm skeptical skeptical about that. I have a lot of questions surrounding that story. So I see that you're describing some hope, but I'm not sure how it's going to land with me because I don't, a lot of presuppositions I'm not buying. Right? Is that fair? That's okay. You don't have to say yes to that. It's okay to have that doubt. And this is the place to have them. This is the place to bring your questions and your doubt. But as almost as a broken record, I think, I've been mentioning over the past few weeks and months, there are honest questions and there are dishonest questions. Not all questions are the same. Right? There are some questions that we ask, some genuine doubt, that we want to understand, we want to know, and we approach Jesus, God, the Bible, in good faith, wanting to have a resolution to our query. That could be an honest question. But sometimes we raise questions and doubts because in the end we don't want to understand. We just want to keep God and Jesus at arm's length. Because we've been saying Jesus is a king. In our modern Western democratic ways of being, we prefer if God would be a teacher or a sage or an interesting prophet that I can sit at a table with as equals and say, well, I like this teaching you have and I love about love and social justice. Ooh, obedience and giving, tithing. No, I don't like that part. I'm going to go ahead and not do that. And, oh, I like this about feeling warm for God's love. Sure. Ooh, forgiving my enemies. No, I'm not going to do that. And we want to sit with Jesus as if he is our elected politicians and say, hey, I elected you. I have some say here. 
But no one elected God. God is God. God is a creator, the sustainer of all that is. Jesus Christ comes to us, the living God, and he's a king. And that's uncomfortable, if we're honest. And so we raise questions, not because we want to understand Jesus more, but to hold him away. As a, as a great thinker once said, you know, a, bur- a burglar will never find a cop. You understand? A thief will never find a cop. Because they don't want to. And so what's the struggle here? In this story about Jesus? Jesus in general. I've been wrestling with this quite a bit, and Oh, I meant to ask a... I'll put it this way. I want you to... This is the posture of the heart. I'm going to bracket for a second questions in good faith. We'll talk about it at the end. But I'm going to talk about this main problem that most of us have, modern watch individuals. And I'll use a couple of words. To put it as clearly as I can, the story of Jesus and his demons, and in fact, most of Jesus' stories, in fact, the Bible, in fact, Christianity, is as us millennials have been known to say, uncool. Or as my younger friends might say, uh, cringe. Is that correct? My Gen Z folk? I hurt you when I said that, right? Right? It's just not, really the word we're trying to use here is it's unacceptable. I have a crafted identity that I use to negotiate my social circles and to have this story about Jesus and a demon and there being a God and a Bible and church on Sundays, that scuffs my image. The identity I've crafted to feel like I'm in control of my life. And I don't want to submit that. And so we, we use words like cool, lit. I saw that face. Right? But here's the, problem. here's the thing with cool. Here's the problem with that. I'm going to use cool. I'm showing my age. Here's the problem with that. Being acceptable at, in those terms that I'm talking about is, has two flaws. One, it's deeply antisocial, anti-community. And two, it will, it will severely limit your ability to speak out against actual injustice in this world. Acceptability, conformity, will Antisocial and will prevent you from speaking out against social injustice. Let me show you how. Cool, or being lit, or whatever the terms you want to use throughout the generations, you know, when does that actually matter, really? It's usually in your high school years. That's when you're trying to really assert your, your individuality, who you are, over and against your parents or other adults that are perceived to be an authority. And that's where you sort of, the music you listen to, the clothes that you wear, the words that you speak to identify, I'm part of this group and I'm accepted by this group who are all just like me and you adults and you teachers and you other people, you're out. Which kind of works out for teenagers because they have a very stable and enforced social arrangement, i.e. high school, that usually have to be legally part of. But of course, as you become a young adult, what happens? You go out there, become an adult, and you realize that no one's forcing you to have society and community. You just have to do it on your own. You have to build it. And so the attitudes of coolness, of being in this special group, it's actually corrosive to honest community, to connecting with others. You have to like hustle really hard to find other people just like you. And the problem with it 
is that even when you do find a community of people just like you to maintain the facade of acceptability, of being cool, of being lit, whatever, is you have to be ruthless with people around you. Or your old friends who are no longer with whatever you perceive to be cool, you have to cut them out. Music, literature that doesn't fit the mold, you cut it out. That is an anti-social, anti-community way of being. And if you have that at the center of your life, acceptability, what does everyone else say? Are we all agreeing that Jesus is okay? Is the Bible okay? Is, is Sunday church okay? And if you're worried about that, well, you're embedding in yourself a deeply anti-community, anti-social way of being. It's corrosive. It will not help. That's one problem. You think that's bad enough? I think it gets worse. You see, in our modern Western attempts to be these intense individuals, these unique individuals, we actually, the moves that we make, such as coolness, which is actually deadening and antisocial, the only way then to build a, a kind of faux community based on those principles is to surround yourself with other people just like me. Are we all, are we all cool? Are we all acceptable? Okay, I'm, I'm here. And then the basis for that arrangement is conformity to groupthink, right? Conformity to groupthink. You actually are going to be incapable of speaking out against this group if and when they do what's wrong. Let me give you a, not so much a local example. I don't want to go too hard on this one with us, but here's one. And I've shared it here before. I'll say it again. Um, I guess years ago now, um, I was a youth pastor for many years, so I had a lot of history interacting with teenagers. And remember I had a specific group, this is in Toronto. And uh, some of the teens had basically said, yeah, isn't it great that we basically solved the human problems? We love you know, LGBTQ plus people, we love all kinds of folks, and we have a couple of issues, but we basically solved humanity. And then I sat there, God bless this great 10 boy. And I just heard him say that out loud. I was like, Whew. that's wild, homie. Like, that's, that, you believe that, all right, let's, let's pop that bubble. I said, um, let's think about this. Given who you are right now, like who you think yourself to be, travel, time travel in your mind, like who, who here in the room, so I asked all the who here in the room you think would have fought against uh, American slavery? Who here would have done it? And then, of course, we had like 40 plus kids, teens, hands go up. Everyone, of course, of course I would have fought against slavery. Uh, wow, okay. Like, everyone put their hands up. I was like, do you want to understand at the height of the American slave trade, the percentage of abolitionists fighting against slavery? Do you want to know what that number was? Generous element, 0.002% were actively fighting against slavery. That means that everyone was in it. Really. That's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. But when acceptability and conformity of your way of life, you think, I'll stand for my, my principles, I'll stand for my morals, I'll speak out against, and then there are special interest groups who will put the pressure on you. And suddenly, you find yourself zipping your mouth. You do. Conformity. Now, that's a way back example. Now, surely said that's in the past, and we've evolved from that today. We've evolved. A lot of people love that word. Oh, man. No, I don't think so. Not too long ago, well, a couple months ago now, I guess, at the end of the fall, I was invited to be part of a, a kind of a dinner and gathering for a lot of a local bank, uh, 
community leaders from all different sectors. You know, they're representing one of the church leaders, but there were folks from like the Filipino coalition and, and all different folks getting together to get to know each other, but also to talk about the problems that we face here in Banff. Because if you live here, you know we have a lot of issues. One of the biggest that we have is actually uh, housing insecurity, right? Paired with food insecurity. It's just expensive to live and eat here. And there's a battle for the soul of this town happening right now because some people want to have Banff to be a place where, yes, we can enjoy nature and have wonderful tourism and have lives. And there are other people who are saying this should be a town of tourism only and basically we should be able to make money off of this and you can live here for a couple of weeks and months to work, but you're not invited to actually have a life here. So the identity of the town is being debated. So we got together... And we were hearing stories such as um, uh, a Muslim, a set of uh, Muslim individuals who were also doctors, and they were giving us their horror stories of them having an office, and then uh, tourist-type individuals, business leaders, would come to them, always offering to buy it, buying their place, buying their place. Not even in good faith. In fact, it was harassment. We don't need dentists here. We don't need doctors here. What we need is another hotel, another way of making money off this land that we stole. And I'm sitting in this group, and we're all talking about these issues. They're very important issues. But then we all hit a wall, the wall of conformity. Here it is. Here's how it appeared in this moment. We had these moral convictions about what was wrong in the town, but then, oh, I think this is wrong. Well, in my opinion, this is wrong. See, I don't want to make morally universal claims. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? There's a difference between saying, that's my opinion, that's wrong, versus saying, that's actually wrong, objectively whether you agree or not. And our culture today is obsessed with having relative morals, but saying, you have your truth, I have my truth, right? You have your way of believing, I have my way of believing, and we just coexist. I mean, why, why have objective truth? Until you hit evil and what's ha- and wrong in this world. And suddenly we're all sitting there, and it's like, yeah, housing is insecure, and people are being harassed from their businesses, and no rooms being made for people to have children, to have kids, to have an actual family in back. It's just money and tourism. But we have the hurdle. Oh, but you have your truth, I have my truth. And how do we talk about this in a way because we can't override our unique perspectives? And so there we are having this like philosophy 101 debate of how do we talk about it? And nothing was resolved from that because we stayed true to the conforming principle that we each have our own truth. So therefore we couldn't come up with a coherent or cohesive claim such as that's wrong, that was always evil, and that's got to stop yesterday. We couldn't get there. And that's happening in our society at large. In the midst of that social unrest and inability to decide how we can talk about right and wrong, the wealthy and well-to-do just walk in, take the money and walk out and leave us debating. Right? In an absence in the vacuum of actual moral uh, dialogue and true moral discourse, money always wins. And that's what's happening. but that we let that happen to a high degree because we also buy into the conformity. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to have to obey. I don't want to have to listen. I want to have my own truth and I can hear your advice and maybe I'll take it, but I don't want to have to listen to you. And we bring that attitude. It causes problems in our society, but then we bring that to our spirituality, to God, to Jesus. And Jesus, I like this, but not this. I like this, but not this. And then we wonder why we don't grow or transform spiritually. I have the same problem for 20 years. 
just can't get over the hurdle. I just can't connect to God. You wonder why? Because you have a framework that does not allow you to connect with the living God. Because God is not an elected official, not beholden to my opinions. God is king. He is absolute freedom. See, notice in the gospel reading, everyone was amazed at Jesus, but notice what they said. Wow, look at his healing, look at his teaching. But we've never seen like something like this before. But what I want to tell you, at that time when Jesus was doing his work, there were other people doing healings. There were other teachers. But somehow, the way Jesus did it, everyone stopped and looked, whoa, who is this person? And Jesus didn't sit around thinking, oh, this is great, look at all this adulation. How do I conform to this cool group that recognizes my individuality? Jesus left, listening to God, and then a person who was hurting came to him. He didn't stop to think, oh, well, how do I think about demons? How weird, is this going to seem weird in my resume and my friends going to think this is cringe? No, then he dealt and helped that person who was suffering with authority, with a voice of command. Get out of this person. Demon, you're done. And while we're left, modern Western individuals, analyzing whether we feel comfortable with the story, Jesus is in the story, healing, transforming, human lives. It's up to you how you come to Jesus, how you receive his love and his blessings. He's there for you, for me. But as we've been saying on Sundays, we have to come to him as king. And he has a word of command. But his word of command isn't to bully, isn't to take your money, isn't to belittle you, his word of command, he speaks to heal. When you feel alone and you feel unloved, his voice of command is that loneliness must die because I love you and I'm there with you. That narrative you have in your mind that you don't matter, that there's no hope, there's no point to this life, I command that to die because I love you, I made you, you have infinite pur- purpose, infinite value. That's the kingship of Jesus, to uplift, to support And yes, to speak out against what's evil. That demon has to die. This issue with greed, overriding housing, and actually having food must die. There is no debate. No relative values. It's wrong. Jesus can do that. He's free. He was connected to God. In fact, he is God. And if you align with Jesus, you will also be connected with God knit with his life, and then you will be able to go out there not too worried about what people are thinking about you, not too worried about conforming to the spirit of the age, and you will be able to speak out against what's wrong in this world. We need that. Our lives need that. My hope is that you come to Jesus and see him as king, for that is who he is. And to that end, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks and praise that uh, in the midst of our questioning, in the midst of our doubts, uh, you don't judge us for having questions, you don't judge us for having doubts, God. You draw near, and if we come to you in good faith, you will give us the answers that we, we need. God, I pray for everyone in this room. I don't know their spiritual journey. You know that perfectly. And I pray that as you're drawing near to us, God, that you would help us sense your presence of love and affection and comfort and peace as only you can give. Help us. Whatever is blocking us from receiving you, God, remove that, kill it. 
Help us to receive your life, God. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ the King.